Jeremiah 47 and the book of Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15 verse 2. John is looking, he sees, he has a vision, yet another vision of heaven, of the heavenly throne room. Note this, however. He says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. You may recall John's already seen the sea of glass, Revelation chapter 4. Well, now he sees something as of a sea of glass mixed with fire in it. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God, the fire portrays for us, as often is the case in Scripture, judgments. That those who are victorious are standing on the sea of glass mixed with fire. They're standing in that place in victory because now the judgment will come. Now the judgment will be finished, will take place. And they sang, verse 3, the song of Moses, which by the way is the first recorded song in Scripture, and the song of the Lamb, the last recorded song in Scripture, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways. King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. There's a fundamental lesson of history that the nations of the world have yet to understand. It's been revealed time and time again by the Lord in His interaction with Israel, in His interaction with the nations of the world, and that is God is the righteous judge of all nations. God is the righteous judge of all nations. Back in Jeremiah 46, verse 1, we're told that which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. And that begins the judgments. In the last five books, five of the last six, Jeremiah 46 through 51, one judgment after another. We saw the first judgment last week, the judgment of Egypt, the nation of Egypt. And so across these next five chapters, judgment is meted out. Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Syria, Arabia, Elam, and finally Babylon. And history has taught us clearly that God judges all the nations. There is no one exempt from the righteous judgment of God. These judgments in Jeremiah are organized west to east. So beginning in Egypt, ending in Babylon, Egypt and Babylon are like the two huge national bookends of the rest. All of these nations, by the way, have to do with Israel, are immediately surrounding Israel, even in representation today. And so tonight we're going to get at least to the edge of Babylon. That's my goal, my hope. But before we go any further, I need to give you five principles of judgment. Five principles of the judgment of God that I believe have to be understood. Otherwise, what we read is in many ways, harsh and difficult to understand. Principle number one, God's judgment is based in His nature. His judgment is based in His nature. That is, He's holy. God is perfect. We can forget that from time to time, especially in how we respond to Him or deal with Him. We forget that He is absolutely 100% 
perfect. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3. Isaiah has a vision. He sees the angelic seraphim. They're in the heavenlies. And as the angels are flying back and forth, they're calling out one to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. But I look around and I don't always see that. And yet the truth is the whole earth is full of His glory. Whether it's on a beautiful spring day like this and we look out and we say, Wow, God, be glorified. Look at your creation. Or on a dark, gloomy day when things are going wrong, God is still the judge of all the nations. God is still has His finger on the pulse of the world. God is still involved. The whole earth is full of His glory. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. He says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves, also in all your behavior, because it is written you shall be holy, for I am holy. God's judgment is based in His nature, in His holiness. He's the standard of perfection. Secondly, God's judgment is impartial. And we have to recognize this. If the nations of the world would sit back and say, what right does God have to judge us? Well, if He's going to judge Israel, trust me, He's going to judge you. And His judgments are impartial and across the board. No one is free from them. Peter in 1 Peter 1.17 goes on to say, if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Because if God is the holy judge, He's the impartial judge. Genesis 18.25, Abraham, trying to figure God out, trying to understand God's motives in destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, says, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Would you be unfair, Father? And of course not, and he proves that to Abraham. And then he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, which again is proof of his impartial judgment. Four times in the book of Revelation, God's judgments are called righteous and true. We read the first one, Revelation 15, verses 2 through 4. Second time, it's repeated in Revelation 16, verse 7. It's repeated again in Revelation 19, verse 2, which as many of you know, is a quote of our worshiping Him in heaven. Calling out righteous and true are all your judgments, O Lord. And that's good news for me because at times when I don't understand His judgment or when I'm not sure that it's completely fair... I know that I'm going to sing a song in the future declaring the fairness and the rightness of everything that He's ever done. So I know at least at some point I'm going to get it because I'm going to sing it. And finally, we see the impartiality of the judgment of God. We see it in Jesus Himself. Revelation 19.11 I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness He judges. In righteousness because that's His nature. He cannot judge unfairly. He does not show partiality because He is holy. Number three, His judgment is based in His nature. That's number one. Secondly, His judgment is impartial. Number three, His judgment is not vindictive. It's vindicating. He is not about revenge. God is about justification. That's where His judgment lands. That's why the judgment was so severe on the cross of Calvary. 
Jesus is the proof for us, through whom God has done all that is necessary to make us holy, like He is holy. Isaiah 53.11, as a result of the anguish of His soul, that is the soul of Christ Jesus, He will see it, God will see it, and be satisfied. By His knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as He will bear their iniquities. Romans 3.23, a familiar verse, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And so, He's not vindictive, but vindicating. Number four, and this is really important to grasp in these next few chapters, His judgment is His peculiar work. God's judgment is His Peculiar work. If not the Lord God, who else is qualified to judge? Who else is going to do it? You? Me? The Supreme Court? Any of our systems of justice around the world? We know how flawed we are. Who will judge if not the Lord? It is His peculiar work. Isaiah 28.21 says the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be stirred up as in the valley of Gabeon to do His task, His unusual task, and to work His work, His extraordinary work. His judgment is His work. No one else can do the work that He must do that is unusual and peculiar to Him alone. And number five, though His judgment is His peculiar work, His judgment, listen, is not His pleasure. He does not delight in judging. He does not delight in condemnation. He does not take pleasure. As he says in Ezekiel 33.11, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I do. (laughs) I take lots of pleasure in the death of the wicked. I I can handle a little bit of revenge. I'm alright with that. But the Lord doesn't. He does not pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. His pleasure is not in judgment, but it's in salvation. Which is why when he took on flesh, he also took on the name Yeshua, salvation. God saves. Because that's his pleasure. That's his desire. That is the overarching fact, the truth, of all the judgments that we're wandering into here at the end of the book of Jeremiah. God is the judge of all nations who is looking to save. Never forget that. He is not looking to condemn. Condemnation will happen because we will reject, people will reject His fairness, His impartiality, the pleasure of His salvation. But He does not look to condemn. He doesn't want to. That is not His heart or His desire. How do you know that, Rick? Because He has shown us that. Because He has said so. And because He bled out so that we might have that hope of eternal life. So keep all that in mind as we continue with the judgment of the nations and we begin in chapter 47. We've already done Egypt. We go on now with Philistia, the ancient foe. Philistia, the ancient foe. We'll just list these out. There's eight nations. We're going to try and look at all of them quickly tonight. The ninth then will be Babylon. We'll get to next week. Lord willing and the saints don't rise. Jeremiah 47, verse 1, that which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, concerning the Philistines, before Pharaoh conquered Gaza. Before he conquered Gaza. So the prophecy was given before Egypt conquered Gaza. That was in 609 B.C. The prophecy was given then. It was fulfilled 
five years later, in 604 B.C. So it was given and it was fulfilled very quickly. And sometimes God does that in prophecy, and it's a way of, of justifying, proving the prophet to be legitimate. To legitimize, legitimize all of his prophecies, even those that would be long-term God does short-term ones to show us that. So verse 2, continuing on, thus says the Lord, Behold, waters are going to rise from the north and become an overflowing torrent, and overflow the land in all its fullness, the city and those who dwell in it, and the men will cry out, and every inhabitant of the land will wail because of the noise of the galloping hooves of his stallions, the tumult of his chariots, and the rumbling of his wheels. Whose chariots, whose stallions, whose wheels? Do you know? Babylon. Babylon's. Alright? Place yourself in this. Not the Assyrians, because this is 604, or 605 B.C. Assyrians, 722. Assyria, and we'll see this in a few minutes, is already very weak by now. About to crumble. So it's Babylon. These are Nebuchadnezzar's horses, stallions, chariots, wheels. The fathers, note this verse 3, have turned, have not turned back for their children. That's how bad it is. Kids are left at home. Fathers aren't even going home to rescue the kids because of the limpness of their hands. They're falling apart. Verse 4, on account of the day that is coming to destroy all the Philistines. To cut off from Tyre and Zidon every ally that is left, for the Lord is going to destroy the Philistines, the remnant of the coastland of Kaftor. Baldness has come upon Gaza. Did I tell you what David said on my birthday? Can I share this with you? No. Happy birthday, Dad. You're bald. <laughs> that was what he said. I'm like, thanks, son. Shave your little head. <laughs> Baldness has come upon Gaza. It's a picture of, of just being trashed, being torn apart. Ashkelon has been ruined. O remnant of their valley, how long will you gash yourself? And then as though the Philistines themselves are crying out, Ah, sword of the Lord, how long will you not be quiet? Withdraw into your sheath. Be at rest. Stay still. And then the answer is, How can it be quiet when the Lord has given it an order? Against Ashkelon, Against the sea coast, there he has assigned it. Waters from the north are Babylon. Tyre and Zidon are mentioned. They actually are Lebanon today. But Tyre and Zidon are mentioned because they were aligned with Philistia, kind of in a similar way that Hezbollah up in Lebanon is aligned with Hamas down in Gaza, two enemies of Israel on either side of the land. And so you have Tyre and Sidon and Philistia in this alignment or alliance together. But there's something we need to know quickly about this old ancient foe of Israel. Look at the end of verse 4. He says, The Lord is going to destroy the Philistines, the remnant of the coastland of Kaftor. Two words are important here. The word coastland is E. Tiny little two-letter Hebrew word, E, and it's tiny because it means island. Kaftor is Crete. Understand this. The Philistines are the remnant from the island of Crete. 
That is their background. That's where they come from. They come from the island of Crete. They were a seafaring Greco-European people who landed on and settled the west coast of Israel just prior to the children of Israel coming back into the promised land. And God left the Philistines there purposefully. Why? Judges chapter 3 verse 3 says the five lords of the Philistines and that refers to the five primary cities of the Philistines. The five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Zidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebel Hamat, they were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord which He had commanded their fathers through Moses. Well, didn't God know what Israel was going to do? Of course He did. But Israel didn't know what Israel was going to do. And the testing and the proving of Israel was for Israel to see what they would do. So often the testing and the proving of our faith is for that very thing. To show us what we will do. To show us how our faith will react or respond in any given situation. Well, a series of Israel's leaders did fight against the Philistines, going back across the history of Israel, beginning with Shamgar, the third of the judges in Judges chapter 3. He killed 600 Philistines with a cattle prod. See, now that's, that's my kind of movie right there. <laughs> Followed Judges uh, 13, um, 13 through 16, by the 13th judge, which was Samson. Samson, who took the jawbone of a donkey and took out tons of Philistines. Ultimately, Judges 16, he brought the house down on the Philippine, Philistines. Not the Philippines. <laughs> I knew I was going to do that, too. Samuel would continue the fight. The last judge, first prophet following Moses of Israel, Samuel. And then so did Saul after him. But it was David who finally routed the Philistines, subdued them, and made them a vassal nation to Israel. Well, after David's son Solomon, of course, the kingdom of Israel divided north and south. And when that happened, the Philistines kind of regathered and regained a foothold on the seacoast of Judah, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, these cities right there. But they never truly regained their national status again. And yet they were there. In existence, the Philistines. In the 2nd century B.C., the Maccabees wiped them out. Whatever was left of him, get this, and I didn't know this before, whatever was left of the remnant of the Philistines was absorbed into Israel. Now, that may not be as impressive to you as it is to me. But here's the thing. Absorbed into Israel, that tells us if any Philistine bloodline exists today, it is among the Jews, not among Arabs. In 135 B.C., 200 years after the Philistines were extinct as a people, the Roman emperor Hadrian revived the name. You guys know this history. We've gone over this. Following the Bar Kokhba revolt, as a direct insult to the Jews, Hadrian renamed the land Palestina. Philistine country. Slapping the Jews in the face. There were no Philistines there. The Philistines were gone. The Philistines were absorbed again by Israel in and among the Jews. And so no... Palestinians per se, no Philistines. And for 1,813 years, Jews who lived in the land were called Palestinian Jews. Arabs who lived in the land were called Palestinian Arabs until May 14, 1948, 
when Israel became a nation. And at that point, then Jews in the land were called Israeli Jews, or just Israelis. And Arabs in the land who accepted the open offer of citizenship were now called Israeli Arabs. And there's a third group you know, the Palestinian refugees. Where did that come from? Philistia as a national identity was extinct. Palestine was never, after that point, a national identity. Again, it was simply a regional name. The whole land was just referred to as Palestine because of Hadrian. But after the Six-Day War of 1967, you all remember the PLO? Palestinian Liberation Organization, founded in 1964. Yasser, that's my baby, Arafat, primary you know, dude in that. 1964 founds the Palestinian Liberation Organization named to liberate Palestine, the region. Not to liberate Palestinians, a people. Because there was no one even being called Palestinian at that point in 1964. 1967, the Six-Day War takes place. Following the Six-Day War, when the Arab nations around realized they could not conquer Israel by force, they decided to go about it a different way. And again, led by Arafat, they began to propagate the propaganda that his people were the Philistines. Part of that ancient race that were here. On the seacoast, long before the children of Israel came out of Egypt and into the land, we were here first. Well, the Philistines were there. Not prior to Abraham, but prior to the people of Israel coming back into the land. But the Philistines, as we note in verse 4, were the remnant of the island of Crete. They were European, they were not Arabic. Palestinians today are primarily Jordanian and other Arabic tribes that make up that people group. I go over this from time to time simply because I know there are new people listening and I know this is, this is one of the biggest lies and one of the biggest undercurrents of terror in the world today is the lie about what's going on in the Middle East. The propaganda that has built up. Arafat was an Egyptian. Did you know that? He's not a Palestinian, quote-unquote. He's an Egyptian. And again, most of the Palestinians are Jordanians who fled their homes at the Six-Day War told by their brothers get out of your homes we'll go in there we'll conquer Israel and you guys can just come and have all the land you want and they never could go back they lost their land so much for modern Philistia well let's continue on the next judgment chapter 48 verse 1 the judgment of Moab I'll call him Moab the Achiever Moab the Achiever Concerning Moab, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Woe to Nebo, for it has been destroyed. This is not Mount Nebo, by the way. This is Nebo, a city that was in the tribal land of Reuben. Woe to Nebo, it's been destroyed. Kiriataim has been put to shame. It has been captured. The lofty stronghold has been put to shame and shattered. There is praise for Moab no longer. In Heshbon, they have devised calamity. Heshbon is a city between Reuben and Gad. It's a city that belonged to, I believe, to the tribe of Gad. And Heshbon means devices. So it's a word play here. There's a lot of that that goes on in these prophecies. We won't even be able to catch because it's, it's embedded in the Hebrew. But Heshbon means devices. In devices, they have devised calamity. Heshbon was the staging ground for Nebuchadnezzar to come in and to attack Moab. 
So in Heshbon, they have devised calamity against her. Come, let us cut her off from being a nation. You too, madmen, will be silenced. Madmen is not a state of mind. It's a, it's a city name. Madmen. And it literally means, I mean, if that's not a weird enough name, it means dunghill. So, where are you from, dunghill? Well, that stinks. The sword will follow after you. The sound of an outcry from Horonaim, devastation and great destruction. Moab is broken. Her little ones have sounded out a cry of distress. For by the ascent of Luhit, they will ascend with continual weeping. At the descent of Horonaim, they have heard the anguished cry of destruction. Flee! Save your lives that you may be like a juniper in the wilderness. And that's a picture of just utter emptiness, of loneliness. He says, for because of your, note this, because of your trust in your own achievements and treasures, even you yourself will be captured. And Hamash will go off into exile together with his priests and his princes. Hamash is the Moabite God. So he's going to be captured. And I said this last week, it just stuns me. Who would want a God that could be captured? A destroyer will come to every city so that no city will escape. The valley also will be ruined and the plateau will be destroyed as the Lord has said. Give wings to Moab for she will flee away and her cities will become a desolation without inhabitants in them. Cursed be the one who does the Lord's work negligently and cursed be the one who restrains his sword from blood. The work of the Lord, the peculiar work of the Lord here with with Moab is judgment. And it's condemnation. Now, this judgment on Moab is actually one of the longest, with the exception of Babylon. Among these judgments, it parallels one that's given by Isaiah against Moab a century earlier, roughly. Isaiah 15 and 16 gives Isaiah's version of the same judgment God is putting out on these people. But this is one where the judgment was given a hundred years before. Moab has had a hundred years to hear the prophecy of Isaiah and repent. And they didn't. Prophecy comes up again now through Jeremiah to repent, and they wouldn't. This judgment, as compared to the judgment against Philistia, has been a long time coming. George Herbert, English poet in 1640, was the first to say, God's mill grinds slow but sure. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow picked up on that, and he wrote, Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceeding small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. And so after this long period of time, after this century, now Moab is going to go down. By the way, from the very, very beginning of time, all the way back in the 7th century from Adam, we have Enoch the prophet prophesying the Lord his God came with many thousands of his holy ones to exact judgment on the earth. God proclaimed judgment back before we were ever here. In the ancient of days, He proclaimed judgment in the end of days. Because that is not what He wants for us. It is His peculiar work. It is not His pleasure. Now, Moab. 
Moab is the land that is directly across, was the land directly across from the Dead Sea. It's the midsection of Jordan today. Jordan is broken down into three parts in the ancient, uh, ancient world. It was Moab in the middle, Edom in the south, Ammon in the north. We'll get to Ammon and Edom in a moment. But the Moabites were distant cousins of Israel by Abraham's nephew Lot and Lot's oldest daughter. Genesis 19.36, Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. So that's the, the background of the Moabites. Lot's two girls, remember the story? They have fled Sodom and Gomorrah. Now it's just Lot and the two girls and they're living up in the mountains and they're hiding out and the two girls go, we're going to get to be too old to have kids and there's our old man dad here and we need to continue the the line so let's get dad drunk and I'll sleep with him, says the older one, and then tomorrow night you sleep with them and they both do and they both have kids by dad. Was that in the Bible, by the way, the the miniseries that they did? Les, you saw that. Was that... They didn't portray that? No, they missed that one. (laughs) The Moabite god, his name again is Shamash. The pagan idol of the Ammonites was the same god. They called him either Milcom or Malcolm or Molech. Molech, the iron furnace idol, which required infanticide. But in return for child sacrifice, this god, Shamash, offered the self-fulfillment that people want. You know, success and personal achievement... And people still sacrifice their children for these things today. I was having a conversation with Mark yesterday at coffee, and, and Mark made the comment, he said, you know, the universe, we could understand this, the universe was created for one purpose, and that is to glorify God. And if we flow in that purpose ourselves as created beings, we are at our best. We are at our most satisfied, we are at our most joyful if we're flowing in the direction that we were created to flow, and that is to bring glory to God. However, self-focus runs the opposite direction. It runs counter to our created reason for being here. Which is why self-focus always messes us up. Which is why personal achievement and even things like self-esteem... Mark was telling me he was talking to the teenagers last week when he was seven for, for Jake and just made the comment about uh, not really giving a rip about their self-esteem. I don't care about your self-esteem. Yeah, kill your self-esteem. No. Who is this guy and where, what have you done with Jake? <laughs> Mark said, I do care about your God esteem. Your esteem in Christ Jesus. He is our focus. Not ourselves. Jesus said in Mark 8.35, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, that was Moab the Achiever's primary problem. Look back at verse 7. Because of your trust in your own achievements and your treasures, even you yourself will be captured and your God will go off to exile. Because you put all your focus and your trust in yourself, in what you could accomplish. And that's why you're being judged here, Moab. Read on, verse 11. Moab has been at ease since his youth. He has also been undisturbed like wine on its dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. Therefore, he retains his flavor and his aroma has not changed. What is the flavor of wine that has sat 
for year after year after year in its dregs. Bitter. Vinegar. Moab, you've got a bitter taste. Bitter aftertaste. You are like vinegar. We talk more about that, I think, on Sunday. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send to him those who tip vessels, and they will tip him over, and they will empty his vessels and shatter his jars, and Moab will be ashamed of Shamash, as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. And what's that allusion? He's talking there, the house of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, had two places of worship. You see, Jeroboam figured, I don't want them going down to Jerusalem and entering into the southern kingdom of Judah, so we've got to have places to worship for us. And we'll have two. One up in the north, in Dan. And one down in the south, in Bethel. And in both places, Jeroboam set up a golden calf for the people of Israel to worship. Think they missed the lesson at Mount Horeb? And so that's what he's referring to here. Israel disappointed by... Their, their worship, ashamed of their worship there at Bethel. And Moab, you're going to feel the same way about your God. Verse 14, How can you say we are mighty warriors and men valiant for battle? Moab has been destroyed. And men have gone up to his cities. His choicest young men have also gone down to the slaughter, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Let's be clear who the real king is here. The disaster of Moab will soon come, and his calamity has swiftly hastened. Mourn for him, all you who live around him, even all of you who know his name. Say how his mighty scepter has broke, has been broken, a staff of splendor. Come down from your glory and sit on the parched ground, O daughter dwelling in Dabon, a city there in Moab. For the destroyer of Moab has come up against you. He has ruined your strongholds. Stand by the road and watch, O inhabitant of Aror. Aror could also be translated ruins. So he may be saying the inhabitants of ruins or a rower was also a city. Ask him who flees and her who escapes and say, what has happened? Moab has been put to shame, for it has been shattered. Wail and cry out. Declare by the Arnon, that is the Arnon River, the primary river that feeds into the Dead Sea. Declare by the Arnon that Moab has been destroyed. Judgment has also come upon the plain, upon Holon and Yatza, against Mephaat, against Dibon, Nebo, and Beth Diblataim, against Kiriataim, Beth Gamul, and Beth Meon, against Kiriot, Basra, and all the cities of the land of Moab far and near. The horn of Moab has been cut off, horn speaking of his authority. And his arm broken, speaking of his strength, military might, declares the Lord. Make him drunk, for he has become arrogant toward the Lord, so Moab will wallow in his vomit, and he also will become a laughing stock, kind of like a drunkard. Someone who gets smashed, and they're throwing up, and they're making a fool of themselves, and everybody's laughing at them. Now, was not Israel a laughing stock to you, or was he caught among thieves? For each time you speak about him, you shake your head in scorn. What's that about? Moab watched the northern kingdom of Israel go into captivity. 7.22 They saw it happen, and God is describing the attitude of the Moabites, who were distant cousins of Israel, watching their distant cousins being hauled off into captivity and shaking their heads. See, I knew they wouldn't last. I knew those Jews would be gone eventually. And what does Moab do? They fled down into the land that belonged to Reuben. 
They took over the cities that belonged to the tribe of Reuben. That's what Moab will do. And we are in verse 28. Leave the cities and dwell among the crags, O inhabitants of Moab, and be like a dove that nests beyond the mouth of the chasm. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness, his pride, his arrogance, his self-exaltation. I know his fury declares the Lord, but it is futile. His idle boasts have accomplished nothing. Okay, pause there for a moment. Covered a lot of ground there, but bottom line, and in many of these prophecies of judgment, there's not a whole lot that the Lord tells us about why they're being judged. Just a little bit. And in Moab's case, we know what the little bit is. Moab the achiever, personal achievement has become profound arrogance. And that's the problem with self-esteem. That is the problem with self-achievement. That is the problem with personal success. Is It so easily leads us into the place of arrogance. Moab's pride was huge. God calls it out six times in verse 29. Using these words, pride, proud, haughtiness, pride, arrogance, and self-exaltation. Six times, six being the number of a man. The typical direction a man will go. Personal achievement leading to profound arrogance. Isaiah 2 verse 11 says, The proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. So what should we do? Just slough off and not do anything? You know, I mean, if personal achievement's a bad thing, do we just sit around and be bums? No. It's just that everything ever achieved in your life is to the glory of God. Every good thing you accomplish, praise God. Every opportunity that you come to and and take advantage of. Praise the Lord. Every success. Hallelujah. It is because the Lord God has seen fit to bless you. And it may be with your gifts, spiritually speaking, your talents physically. It may be with insight or intuition or wisdom or something that the Lord gives you, even opportunity. Everything, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And so it's not about not trying, not wanting to succeed, not pressing forward to achieve great things. It's achieving great things for the Lord and in the name of the Lord. But the Moabites, they were achieving for themselves in the name of themselves and they became very lofty and proud and lifted up. Ironically, there are still proud Moabites today. I found it fascinating as we got onto the Jordanian tour bus with our Jordanian tour guide who was an interesting fellow. And he began to tell us right off the bat, I mean, we were probably five minutes down the road and he's already saying there's no such thing as Jordanians. That's what the, that's what the Europeans put on us. No, we are Edomites and Moabites and Ammonites. That's who we are. And he said it so proudly. We are of these ancient tribes. And I'm like, have you read Jeremiah 46 through 51? Might want to check that out. He's proud of it. We're not Jordanians. I'm reading this and I was thinking, when do we know? When do we, brothers and sisters in Christ, when do we know that there's pride creeping in? 
You know, is there a measure for that? And I believe there is. A, a diagnostic test that we can run. And this is it. Pride always eclipses prayer. The more prayerful you are, the less prideful you are. The less prayerful you are, the more prideful you are. It's a direct correlation, gang. I was talking with Glenn earlier today, and and we're talking about something that's really been interesting that's been going on. There are a lot of things, a lot of very serious and important needs going on in our church body right now. From people struggling with cancer to various diseases to struggles in marriage to life situations that are really hard. And we've noticed that this began to tick upwards in a pretty significant way ever since we committed to Thursday prayer. And I'm sure that that's on purpose. And I'll tell you why. I believe God is allowing us to share in the burdens of one another, to suffer one with another, as well as rejoice together more now than ever before because we're praying. Because we're taking it to Him in prayer. If we weren't, then we would be trying to figure these things out on our own. And God knows we'd never get anywhere. Because we'd be seeking our own achievement. And I invite you, again, tomorrow night, we're praying. Come on out. It is, it's just it's the best. I love it. But it's getting down before the Lord and saying, we do not have the power. We do not have the perspective. We don't have the ability. God, we can't do this. And truly, we can't. But He can. And prayer shows us our need, whereas pride draws us away from God. Pride, I've got it. I'm fine. Without you, Lord, I've got the resources, I've got the wisdom, I've got the talent, the strategies, the skills, and it's all pride. And we realize we don't have any of that. We end up on our knees. And that's the best place for us to be before the Lord. Because there, we recognize and draw off of His wisdom, His grace, His power, His perspective. All things that we need. 2 Corinthians 12.9, Paul understood this. He said, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Why, Lord? Because when you're weak, then you see where the strength is coming from. If you're strong and all together and handling things, how are you going to know if it's my work in your life? You won't. But in your weakness, you see me at work. Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. James wrote in James 4, verse 8, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Why? Because there's one thing that far surpasses in grandeur our pride and that is God's passion. Watch this, verse 31. Therefore I will wail for Moab. Who will wail for Moab? God will. Even for all Moab will I cry out. I will moan for the men of Kir Hares. More than the weeping for Hatzer, I will weep for you, O vine of Sidma. And these are all locations in Moab. 
Your tendrils stretched across the sea. They reached to the sea of Hatzer. Upon your summer fruits and your grape harvest, the destroyer has fallen. So gladness and joy are taken away from the fruitful field, even from the land of Moab. And I have made the wine to cease from the wine presses. Why? Because your wine is rotting in the barrel. For the wine before, earlier, back in verse 11? You haven't been empty vessel to vessel. You've been sitting there fat, dumb, and happy. No change in your life. No moving forward. No getting stirred up. And so you just think we're all good. Not anymore. I've made the wine to cease. No one will tread them with shouting. The shouting will not be shouts of joy. He says in verse 34, For from the outcry at Heshbon, even to Eliala, even to Hatzaz, they have raised their voice from Zoar, even to Horanaim, and to Eglath, Shalishia. For even the waters of Nimrim will become desolate. I will make an end of Moab, declares the Lord. The one who offers sacrifice on the high place and the one who burns incense to his gods. Therefore, note this, my heart wails for Moab like flutes. My heart also wails like flutes for the men of Kir Hares. Therefore, they have lost the abundance it produced. For every head is bald and every beard cut short. There are gashes on all the hands and sackcloth on all the loins. That is a a portrait there of severe depression and sorrow. Verse 38, And on all the housetops of Moab and in its streets there is lamentation everywhere. For I have broken Moab like an undesirable vessel, declares the Lord, how shattered it is, how they have wailed, how Moab has turned his back. He is ashamed. So Moab will become a laughing stock and an object of terror to all around him. This is a passionate lover who says, My heart wails for Moab like flutes. Verse 36. The parallel passage in Isaiah 16, verse 11. My heart intones like a harp for Moab. You see, this is not a God who has tunnel vision for Israel and can really care less about the Arabs around. Yeah, whatever. As long as my people are okay. Moab, Edom, Ammon, who cares? Egypt, whatever. No. This is a God who loves all mankind. Who loves every nation. Who desires that every nation come to repentance and fall before Him and worship Him. And His love and His passion is so amazing in this judgment. Because the mournful cry in the midst of judgment comes from the judge himself. He's the one weeping. He's the one upset by what he must do as the judge of all the nations. I remind you, Ezekiel 33.11, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. His peculiar work is not pleasurable to him. It's painful. These These are the tears of heaven. This is the weeping of Gethsemane. This is the pain and the cries from the cross of Calvary. The love of God is passionate. In Feinberg's commentary, he writes, Because all men are creatures of God, it is with brokenheartedness that He must judge them and their sins. Isn't that a different perspective? When the world's saying, I don't want to be judged by God, so I'm not going to go to church. You're all judgmental anyway. And the world literally thinks of God as this judgmental, harsh God, and so we just don't, not realizing, no, He is the God who weeps for you. He's the God whose heart is breaking for you, even if He is the one disciplining you. 
He's weeping in the discipline. I've spanked David twice in the last four years. And they were the two hardest spankings I have ever given in my life. Ever. Because he's just such a precious little dude. He's got a sweet little face, you know, a little fuzzy head. But he needed the discipline. And I spanked him, and the tears came to his eyes, and I hugged him with a huge knot in my throat, choking up, just praying, God, may I never have to do this again to the sweet little guy. And that's how God feels when he judges. He weeps, he aches. Gang, the value in the study of all these judgments is not, yeah, give it to them, yeah, get the Ammonites, get the Moabites. No, it's discovering the heart of the judge and his great love. Lamentations 3.33 tells us he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. Not his desire. Verse 40, for thus says the Lord, behold, one will fly swiftly like an eagle and spread out his wings against Moab. Kiriot has been captured and the strongholds have been seized. So the hearts of the mighty men of Moab in that day will be like the heart of a woman in labor. I think you women can understand that better than us guys, but I think we all get the picture. Moab will be destroyed from being a people because he has become arrogant toward the Lord. Terror, pit, and snare are coming upon you. In the Hebrew, that's pahad, wapahat, wapah. And I say that because there is a... There is amazing poetry. In fact, they say some of the most beautiful Hebrew poetry in the whole Bible is in these judgments. We don't see it because we're just reading, you know, dumb English. But if we could hear it in the Hebrew, pahad, wapahad, wapah, wapah, you know, (laughs) terror. It literally in our language would be terror, trap, fallen, trap, and and it's written this way to kind of grab a hold of the emotions. The one who flees from the terror will fall into the pit, and the one who climbs up out of the pit will be caught in the snare. Kind of like Amos 5.19 last week, the guy running from the lion is going to be caught by the bear. And he goes home and leans up against the wall, and a snake bites him. I mean, it just goes from bad to worse. And I shall bring upon her, even upon Moab, the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the shadow of Heshbon, the fugitives stand without strength. For a fire has gone forth from Heshbon, and a flame from the midst of Sihon. This was, again, the staging ground of the attack of Babylon came out of Heshbon into flooding into Moab. And he says, it has devoured, note this, it has devoured the forehead of Moab and the scalps of the riotous revelers Woe to you, Moab! The people of Shamash have perished, for your sons have been taken away captive and your daughters into captivity. Now this gets a little tricky here. Tying the prophetic judgment of Moab to a specific previous date. Now Nebuchadnezzar did destroy Moab to a degree, but there's a phrase here that gives a greater meaning. And we know Moab, even after the Babylonians came in and conquered, kind of settled back in and there there had been Moabites in the land There are people who track lineage to Moab living in Jordan today. And so trying to figure all this out, it's interesting, scholars tell us if we could see this in the Hebrew, 
we would have a better sense of what's going on. Feinberg points this out, and I think it's fascinating. Look at this. He says, a flame in the midst of Sihon, and then he says, it has devoured the forehead of Moab. The forehead of Moab is the, is the key there. And the scalps of the riotous revelers. If we read this in Hebrew, what we would see is it's a reworking of the exact same thing from an earlier prophecy. We could see this and go, hey, wait. We've seen those words before. Now we've seen the forehead of Moab before. But even what's translated scalps of the riotous revelers, we've seen before, but the English doesn't translate that way. What are you talking about, Rick? An ancient prophecy was given to a one-time king of Moab whose name was Balak. The prophecy was given to him by a sneaky, self-serving seer whose name was Balaam. And in Balaam's prophecy, Numbers 24-17, listen to the prophecy, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. Who is that? That's Jesus. It is a prophecy of old, an ancient prophecy of Jesus. The scepter, the ruler rising from Israel. The star, the star of Bethlehem. And Balaam saw this. He's, he's contracted by Balak to curse Israel, and he can't. And this is what comes out of his attempt to curse is blessing. And the blessing is amazing. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel, and he shall crush through the forehead of Moab and shall tear down all the sons of Sheth. The sons of Sheth. It's ben Shaah. In the Hebrew. It has devoured the forehead of Moab here in Jeremiah and the scalps of the riotous revelers. If you saw it in the Hebrew, it would be Ben Sha'ah. Sons of Shep. It is a restatement of that same prophecy. So what does that tell us? It tells us Balaam's prophecy we know is fulfilled in and by Jesus. The scepter who rises and will crush through the forehead of Moab. Jesus didn't do that in His first coming, did He? This is an end times prophecy. This puts us all the way out to Jesus' second coming and His crushing at that point of the forehead of Moab. Scepter, born under the stars. Jesus, crushing the forehead of Moab and the sons of Sheth in His second coming. But after crushing the forehead of Moab, the arrogance, the pride, what does Jesus do? The Lord's peculiar work brings about His greatest pleasure Salvation. Look at verse 47. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord, thus far the judgment on Moab. That's remarkable. Restoration. Salvation for the Moabites. Why would God do that for Moab? I mean, after all, He was the one who said in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. No Moabite. You're out. So why the restoration of Moab in the latter days? One simple word. Grace. It's grace. God is a God of grace. Just as by grace, long about the 11th generation. Now did you hear that? Deuteronomy 23.3 says, 
No Moabite, from that point when Moses spoke these words, no Moabite all the way to the tenth generation shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Guess who came along in the eleventh generation? Well, David did. His great-grandmother was Ruth the Moabitess. His great-grandmother, Ruth, a Moabitess, is in the bloodline of Messiah. And God waited for David to come along in the 11th generation. I've said this before. This is why I don't believe Saul was God's choice at all for Israel. David was. David was God's number one man. David was the one that God wanted to, planned to, bring in as the king of Israel in the 11th generation. The people said, we want a king like the nations. And God said... Okay, we got some time until David, so I'll give you Saul so you can see that you're getting exactly what you want. Grace. John 1.17 tells us the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And Matthew 1.5 shows us Ruth, the Moabitess, in the lineage of Jesus. I love that. It's marvelous.